Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, Lucia Cantor St. Amour talks with us about her new book, For the Forces of Good, The Superpower of Everyday Negotiation. She also discusses the power of mentorship, rapport building, and mediation. Lucia Cantor Amour is a VP for UN Women USA, practicing attorney, and former law professor turned everyday negotiation superhero. She's here to show you how to harness your everyday negotiation superpowers so you can land your dream job, get your kids to eat their peas, and be the most powerful person in the room. As the author of the most inclusive and comprehensive 21st century negotiation guide you'll ever need for the forces of good, Lucia knows that negotiation isn't just for business. It's everybody's business. Good morning, Lucia, and welcome to Conflict Manage. Good morning, Mary, and thank you for inviting me. We're so happy to have you here to talk about you and this wonderful book that you've written for us. Right, and which is not so much about me because I wrote it for all of you, and we can get into that a little later if you like. Excellently. Well, can you go ahead and start by telling us all about your work history? Well, gosh, that's a lot. Gosh, that's a great big open-ended question, isn't it? So I will I will try and be succinct and yet comprehensive. Let's see, mainly law, right? So I've had a legal career that spans over 25 years now, and the substantive area has been mainly employment law, also with some special education law. And I've been a practicing attorney. I have been a law professor teaching negotiation for 10 years at two University of California law schools. I have lectured internationally on the topic. I have been a a competition judge and mediator at the International Chamber of Commerce. I am now a a VP for UN Women USA, and I also have a deep background in mediation, which goes back to 1993 and actually was one of uh, the small team of people who originated the pilot mediation program at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the San Francisco Regional Office. And just a lot of different contexts. So private sector, public sector, nonprofit sector, uh, educational, higher education sector, international, philanthropy, I have my own nonprofit organization. So uh, I've kind of run the Gamut. And I've seen, especially in employment law, I think I've seen just about everything. (laughs) (laughs) So what brought you, got you interested in doing law in the first place? Well, this, this goes to really probably one of my better work experiences uh, and jobs and bosses in general. And that goes back also to 1993. So when I said my mediation background goes back to 1993, it was a job a few years out of college with a mediation and arbitration practice. It was a group of attorneys who had an alternative dispute resolution practice, and they brought me on board, and they really showed me the ropes. And I was someone who got a lot of access to sort of everything and what arbitration and mediation were all about. And people tend to use those interchangeably. They are very, very different. And uh, learning all about alternative dispute resolution and just having great mentorship from 93 to 95, quite frankly, I don't think I would have gone to law school because I thought 
it was too hard. Uh, the LSAT daunted me. I thought, I can't, I'm terrible at standardized tests. I can't, I would never even <laughs> make it past the LSAT. These mentors meant so much to me that I thought, wow, this is, I'm going to do this because I kind of want to be like them. I want to do what they're doing. And so I did it. I, I studied for the LSAT for something like eight months and did a million practice tests and practice problems and applied to law school and got in and hung in there for three years and somehow managed to pass the bar. And and here we are 25 years later. Wow. I mean, that goes to the power of people investing in us. So what did these mentors do? What kind of behaviors did they show you that was so attractive? Well, they really just brought me along. They invested in my personal development. And it wasn't just, they didn't just treat me like a, a number or like a, a lemming or someone who was just replaceable. They taught me about mediation and arbitration and law and relationships and how to like write client letters. And they brought me to mediations and arbitrations. They brought me out to dinner with them. They brought me to client dinners. And then they would debrief with me afterwards. And they brought me to the lie library when they had a special project to show me how to research something. And so that I could then take that ball and run with it. And then they would give me feedback. They sent me to trainings. They, they invested financially in me. They invested personally in me. They took an interest in my development. They really deeply cared about me as a person and they are still in my life. They're in my children's lives today. So they first started off as bosses, then mentors, then colleagues, and, and now important figures, even to my own children who are now advanced teenagers. Wow. That is so powerful. I was reading an article the other day, um, about the importance of having work friends or work, work relationships. And it seems so contrary to everything that I see in a lot of social media, like on TikTok and other places that talk about work as being disposable. You go in, you do your time, you leave. Those relationships don't really matter. And that's so untrue. It's untrue in a variety of ways, but the richness that we can get from those relationships that can span our whole life, uh, what a, a testimony to... And the strength of of long relationships, decade-long relationships, how people can pour into you and then you can pour into them. Exactly. It's it, it goes both ways. And what's really tickles me is that to this day, they'll say to me, you know, Lucia, you you've surpassed us now. We they will call me for negotiation advice. They'll say, Hey, wow. I need to run something by you. Hey, and that's not only is that really cool, and also just the honesty of the relationship that they've always been there for me through thick and through thin and without giving me sort of false encouragement. Everything mm -hmm. about the relationship was really genuine. And now because I've seen what mentorship can do, I am now in that position to mentor this next up and coming generation of particularly, I'm particularly interested in women and mentoring women. And I'm very, very involved in several different mentoring projects. Yeah, I mean, we learn in a variety of different ways, but having somebody come alongside and, as you said, 
invite, right? This belonging, inviting you out and and looking and having you be a part of their lives. That's that's so powerful. And now right, that's, you pass that's it the along. word. Yeah, that's the word, isn't it? It's it's belonging. And that's what I think remote work has made so difficult. I think remote work has really leveled the playing field in, in many ways because so many office environments are frankly, they are structured for a particular narrow demographic that is not inclusive. And in very insidious ways, even just the office thermostats, those are still set to the resting metabolic rate of a a 40-year-old man who's about 165 pounds. And that was sort of established in the 60s. And that's still how office thermostats are. So there are all these sort of invisible ways that offices are just not inclusive, that remote work has helped. And then, of course, there's the flip side to that, which is that it's made it more difficult to have meaningful relationships because the relationships piece and the rapport building which is the word, I, I should probably word count that in my book, see how many times the word rapport appears because it's it's terribly important. And it's the part that I'm noticing on Zoom meetings and mediations and negotiations happening on Zoom that is most often getting skipped is that rapport building or that sort of, let's just get down to business and what what matters. And then without the rapport building and well, rapport building actually does matter. And if you're wondering why you're not making progress, it, it could be as simple as that you, you never bothered to establish any rapport. Yeah. You know, one thing that you do in your book, which I should mention is called For the Forces of Good, the Superpower of Everyday Negotiation. Uh, throughout your book, you have these everyday super tips. And one that really resonated with me uh, was it was in the, I think it was in the end of chapter eight, and you were talking about the importance of having a story at the ready to either to bridge an impasse or to build a connection. And when we think about how we have that rapport with one another, stories are so important. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of stories with rapport building and negotiation? I, I can, and I'm going to back up a little bit because, yes, I do say have a story at the ready because stories are su such a powerful tool, an effective tool in negotiation for a number of reasons that I that I talk about in the book. You said something earlier about the everyday super tips, and those are important because there I think there are about 40 of those in the book, and the, the idea of that is to be sticky, that, look... Uh, Many of the most of the other negotiation books out there are written by white men. It is actually incredibly, an incredibly male dominated market space that that sort of shocked me when I finally saw that this year and also tends to be sort of elitist and exclusive. So, you know, written by the C-suite executive or MBA or attorney or sales and marketing professional for that same audience and very few people of color and non-cisgender men authors in the general marketplace on the topic. Well, so what happens with that? You have everyday people sort of going, oh, this is some really specialized skill that I can't do on my own, or I don't know how to negotiate. I can't do that. And that is nonsense. It is negotiation, the way I always put it is is not just for business. It is everybody's business. It's everywhere. It's every day. It's for everyone. And you're probably a better negotiator than you think. So let's let's go ahead and hone that skill and that art and get you internalizing the idea that you actually are a competent everyday negotiator. So one of the ways is to make things sticky. So if you're going to write a book these days, 
you can't just have pros, pros, pros. I mean, look, people are scrolling social media posts. That's what they do. So you've, I think you got to write a book in a way that's going to stick with, that they can stick with it and it's going to stick with them. So that's one of the ways I did it was the, was with the everyday super tip text boxes and then other things like the artwork and the various checklists and do's and don'ts and, and charts and graphs and things like that to give you a break for the eye. Uh, so storytelling is ancient. Everybody's got stories. Everybody can relate to stories. It's nurturing. It brings you back to being a child and having a story read to you. Stories are easier to remember in tense moments than facts or data. Stories are less apt to be interrupted by the other side. Stories are just a great tool to have overall. So that's just sort of off the top of my head. And so when you get to an impasse, in a, whether it's an everyday negotiation or a conversation, well, first of all, are you really at impasse? Or are you just at sort of a, a, a difficult moment? Because that's not what I would call impasse. And there's all these different tools you can use to get unstuck. And that's one of them is, is stories. Was that modeled for you early on, the power of storytelling? It's a good question. I have never really thought about the power of storytelling as something that was particularly called out or modeled to me. I, I know that I love stories. I love movies. I all kinds of movies. I someone who speaks many languages. And so I watch movies in lots of different languages. And so I get exposed to different cultural stories and, and have since I was a child. I've always been a reader. And I'm one of those people who ever since I was a kid, I felt like the characters and stories were my friends. And when my mom called me to dinner, I, it would take me a moment to remember who I actually was. So maybe I'm a little hardwired that way. But I think maybe we're all hardwired for stories. It is uh, it, it runs really deep in the, the human condition and in human history. Yeah, I taught ethics for oh, about 20 years and a textbook I used for about 10 of them was called The Moral of the Story by Nina Rosenberg. And I found it very helpful to help students and help myself think about um, different moral theories or what might, you know, what might some problematic issues be or how we can solve them through looking at stories. And I think that also builds empathy because when we think about our own situation, their own conflict we're in, the, our own thing that we need to negotiate it. Sometimes we just get so stuck in the forest, but if we can take that sort of that bird's eye view and come out and look down, as you said, stories are these universal ways that we can connect with one another. I find that is very helpful. It is helpful. And, and there's that word empathy, right? So it is, it is, does help with the empathy. And one of the miraculous things about empathy that I love in negotiation is that you concede nothing by expressing empathy. Empathy does not mean you agree with the other side and and also de-escalating. So that cortisol that's pumping out of people's brains in a tense moment can slow down. Uh, that's, you know, cortisol is a stress hormone that, that can slow down through empathy and, and storytelling. You know, I think that's so important. I think when we look at the divide we have in this country and, and where people are, this idea that we can treat others with respect, we can have empathy for them. And it doesn't mean that we're saying that they're right. It doesn't mean that we're endorsing their position. And we still might think they really are wrong. And yet, how do how do we have these real conversations? How do we bridge these divides? If we're not going to have empathy for the other person, it's probably not going to happen. Right. And, you know, empathy is one of these really popular buzzwords right now. And so we see it a lot. We hear it a lot. And I, I think it needs to be you need to dig into it a little bit to actually do it, to actually practice it. And empathy isn't generic, as in 
thinking that you're really listening effectively to somebody because you're letting them rant and you're not interrupting and you're nodding your head. And then when they're done, you, you say, I understand, or you say something generic, like, wow, that's really frustrating. Or wow, that's crazy. That's not empathy. <laughs> empathy yeah. is getting to that next level. Empathy is reflecting back the words that you heard, as well as the what makes the words important. In other words, the the emotional content, the emotional facts. And as a mediator, what I'm always saying, actually I say it every day, even to my own kids, is emotions are another category of facts. So empathy and effective listening means decoding those emotional facts. It means acknowledging them and decoding them. And it's actually a skill that needs to be practiced, not just a buzzword that we all nod our heads and we say, oh yes, empathy is wonderful. And then we don't actually practice it. I love that, you know, practicing it. How do we get good at anything? Um, we get good by practicing and these are skills. It's not that you are born with it or you or not, and that's it. You know, I just don't have that ability. No, we can all learn to communicate. We can all learn to extend empathy and grace to others, but it, it doesn't just happen. It happens right. intentionally and we can practice. We can you can practice on a friend, uh, uh, someone who you have a lot of uh, rapport with and practice, practice, practice. Well, exactly. And you actually need to be willing to do something awkwardly at first before you get good at it. So yeah. do that and to develop a new habit, I can't remember how many days that takes. I, I've I've seen different data on this. I've heard 21 days. I think it's really more. I think it's more like 40 days to develop a, a habit. So that's really what we're talking about here. It's not some hit or miss thing. It really is done with intention and curiosity and getting to that next level that not just the what's being said, but the why and then expressing it back and not even so much putting yourself in the other person's shoes. I think empathy is taught incorrectly that way. It, it, it's it's too hard to do that, to put yourself in the, the other person's shoes. It's easier if you can imagine the situation from the perspective of a third party, right? So how would a neighbor look at it? How would a teacher look at it? Maybe a, a banker, a mediator, how would a respected colleague or a judge or an arbitrator look at the situation. That might be an easier way for people to tap into empathy. Yeah. And as you said, being willing to be awkward, which takes courage. And these are virtues that you can have, but you don't, you don't just run a marathon overnight. You have to practice and get the stamina. And so if you do lack courage, which a lot of us do, it's, you, you can get it by doing it, by putting yourself out there and maybe little by little, that's probably the best way to do it build up to it, but you can build up up to it. You can develop these skills, which is what I really appreciate your book. I found your book very readable, very accessible um, because of the way that it is written with with the tips and the list and the graphs and encouraging because these are steps, everyday steps that anyone can take to develop these habits or these uh, what we do anyway, as you said, we negotiate. So why not do it well? Why not do well, it intentionally? Yes. And I also, as you know, since you did read the book so thoughtfully, is I share my heartbreaks with you too. I share yeah. my vulnerabilities. I, I go, look, this isn't, these aren't magic incantations. If you want those, you need to reread Harry Potter uh, because th that's not what this is. You think of it like baseball. If you, you look at the best hitters in the history of baseball, 
right? Their batting average doesn't go north of 350s, right? So what is that? Three and a half hits for every 10 at-bats, right? Well, you need to have a lot of swings at the plate in order to get the hits. So in my book, there are some moments that are hard where uh, you will experience a range of emotions because there are some things that really go wrong as well. <laughs> right. It's human. <laughs> That's, it's not, we have this tendency to think that we're either good at something or we're not. It's, and it's a hundred percent or it's not, but yeah, from sports, from life experience, it's, uh, when I think about my house being clean, it's not clean a hundred percent of the time. It's how, how well am I doing at the metric that I have set? And, and I have a goal and trying to constantly get there and it's uh, being intentional and thinking about it and moving forward. Uh, as we develop as persons, it is developed. Just like we're lifelong learners, I think that we're continually morally developing. We're not there. We can constantly get better, but we get better by trying. You're right. And that's, um, you said a couple of things there that really resonate with me. I really love that you said develop and not change because it is, it's, it's, you don't need to change. You be you and develop evolve, refine. And then this idea of sort of never arriving, no, we're never arrived. And I talk, even talk about that in the book, this, this idea of uh, perspectival objectivity that, that Friedrich Nietzsche would agree with. And I, I have the readers at one point imagining what would be on Nietzsche's you know, Twitter feed. Um, and you don't even need to know anything about Nietzsche to imagine it because of the way I tee it up for you in the book. And this, this idea of, well, my house isn't perfectly clean. You know, it's so much easier for people to speak and think that they are living in extremes. It is either or. You know why, Mary? Because it is much more difficult and also much more elegant to balance, to live in balance. Why? Because balance means constantly readjusting, right? Constantly being paying attention to various factors and recalibrating. And that really takes more attention than just picking an extreme and staying there. So that, I think that's why we see a lot of this, this galvanization and living in extremes is because it's just easier, although it's also more thoughtless. And just this idea of, oh, I'm either good at something or I'm not. That's one of the reasons I, after I already had a full manuscript of the book and I was at Easter dinner this year and I had a high school senior there, not my own son, but a friend of his who was off to Brown and said, uh, oh yeah, he was going to study international relations. And when he found out I'd written a book on negotiation, he said, oh, negotiation. Well, that's just something you, you either have that skill or you don't. It can't really be taught. And <laughs> my own son shot me this look. And I looked at him with the searing gaze that only an Italian mother can accomplish as if to say, did you tell your buddy to say that to me? Because I turned to his friend and I said, boy, when you're wrong, you are really wrong. <laughs> okay, negotiation, not only can it be taught, but I have been teaching it for years. And let me just tell you, and then boy, did he get an earful from me. So <laughs> I love that your book is called um, For the Forces of Good, because I think and maybe I'm the only person, but when I think about negotiation, I mean, I don't believe this, but when I think about it, I think of the anxiety of going into the car, you know, the car a lot and getting a bad deal because I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't really know all the ins and outs and, and as, as it being slimy mm -hmm. for some reason, 
But of course, it's not true. And so I love that you've called it for the forces of good. What was your thought process behind that? Well, we have had a lot of negativity and we get it every day, particularly through the media. The brain has a very powerful, sturdy and ancient negativity bias, and we do not need to feed it snacks. What we need to do is is, is train the, the positive mindset and in a disciplined way. And, you know, keeping people fearful, which is sort of a strategy right now and has been for a number of years, is an incredibly effective way to control large populations. And so it's sort of a, an answer to that, which is, no, this is for the forces of good. Now, here's the catch, Mary. Just about everyone you meet believes they are someone of good faith and reason. So we can disagree about what we think is a force for good. And the other aspect of it is that I have found that negotiation is all too often used synonymously with the word conflict. And I mean, the name of your podcast is Conflict Manage, right? So people use that negotiation conflict. Well, okay, sure. Uh, conflict is one category of negotiation, but only one. So what is the difference between negotiation and mediation? Well, a mediation is an assisted negotiation. So people might say, well, we've already been trying to negotiate on our own. What difference is a mediator going to make? Well, a mediator can make a huge difference because chances are you have not been listening to each other the way that a mediator will listen to you because a mediator will listen to you like you have never been listened to before. And I talk about that in chapter five. And chances are you have not been actually sharing information quite fully with the other side that you might with a mediator. So uh, the simplest way of putting it is that it's an assisted negotiation and it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, we're going to meet in the middle. Cause I hear that a lot. The mediator is going to help us meet in the middle. I, that's a pet peeve of mine, by the way, I should tell you this whole meet in the middle thing. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. What's the, what's the middle? Where is that? That is completely arbitrary and it's unprincipled. This idea of, oh, just meet in the middle. Well, then you don't need a mediator if you're just going to meet in the middle. <laughs> yeah. All right. Where everybody leaves dissatisfied, half happy, half sad, instead of the win-win um, uh, mediation negotiation where everybody's needs get met and it requires us to listen. It requires creativity. It requires patience. And it also requires a lot of self-knowledge, right? To really get past our positions, to get to what what our needs are. Exactly. And, and when you say everybody's needs will get met, well, maybe not, but, but you'll at least get closer. You'll get some approximation of your needs being met. So when people, when people sort of advertise my skill set and expertise in my book and say, Lucia's going to teach you how to get everything you ever wanted. I say, no, no, I have never said that. I would not say that because negotiation, as with mediation, it is not a shrill demand. It is not an attitude of entitlement. It is a skill and it is an art and it needs to be honed. So there's a lot of subtlety. There's a lot of nuance in it. And it means getting closer to satisfying your needs and and maybe even some of your wants. Uh, 
And you stand a much better chance of doing that in mediation than you do by going to court where you give up all your power, where the only facts that come into court are the legally relevant ones, you know, those dictated by the rules of evidence. And then all those emotional facts, which are often the ones that get you to close a deal, are not addressed. And then it also takes you three years and a lot of money and keeps you stuck emotionally. And, you know, mediation is an incredibly powerful place to be and to be leveraged. Yeah. And when I think about this idea of the forces of good when it comes to a conflict, especially because I'm interested in workplace conflicts, I think about, you know, this old idea of you go to HR, if you end up going to HR, you've got a winner and a loser. And at the end, everybody's losing because they're still working together, right? Uh, We have this, you know, magical thinking that, oh, this person's going to get punished and be sent away. But typically, you know, that doesn't happen. There's still Now, in this environment, the system hasn't been fixed. And if we think about what is good, not just for me, but for the other and for the organization, right? So it's not just a power move of me getting everything that I can get, but how can we all win? Because we all win together. And so instead of just this power move of I'm more powerful in this situation, therefore I'm going to crush you and get what I want. If we can really step back and think, okay, how can we both get our needs met? I agree. I mean, it's a, it's a, to, to promise that people are going to get all of their needs fulfilled is, you know, or not genies, right? That That's unrealistic, but to try to get past positions to think about, okay, well, what is it that I really need? And what are the variety of things available to get those needs met? Yeah, exactly. And even if, let's say you don't get to a deal in the mediation, chances are you made progress. It, yeah. it it was still time well spent. And it doesn't mean in another month you won't get a deal. So yeah. it's it's progress too. So let's recognize progress, not necessarily outcomes all the time. We don't have to be always outcome oriented. We could look at the progress that we've made. And sometimes we forget to do that. Yeah. Oh, I think that's so important. Uh, When we only look at the end, uh, just like in business and in life, you know, we are all on this journey and to recognize the progress that we have made uh, is very human because we're not always going to get this resolution um, and then it's over. But progress is significant. I, I really appreciate that. Absolutely. So when you look into the future of work and you think about your kids out in the workplace, what do you want for them? What do you want work to look like such that it brings about um, flourishing for all the individuals in the organization? There are a few things that come to mind when you ask me that question. And one would be probably at the top of my list is allyship. And I don't mean a one and done workshop. Allyship is where legacy players in the organization champion those who have been left out and not in a condescending or patriarchal way. And like I said, it's not a one and done workshop where again, everyone nods their heads and agrees that allyship is a good thing, right? We can all, we can all agree that Labrador puppies are a good thing, right? Are you going to bring one home? Probably <laughs> not. Right. And what happens is, is then you have this training and then nothing changes. Allyship is an ongoing system that you can count on being time consuming, costly, uncomfortable, inconvenient, too bad. Do it and keep doing it. Those who aren't on board for allyship in a meaningful, systemic, consistent way should probably not be there. I don't care how quote unquote high performing they are. Number two is addressing the care economy. 
I would like organizations and leaders and organizations to be looking at how many of their employees are caregivers. And I don't just mean of children, but right. of elders and um, anything in between. And what is your organization doing to support them? The a care economy affects everybody, whether you know it or not, because the care economy is what enables everyone everyone to work at all. The third thing sort of at the forefront of my mind is, is, is keeping an eye out for practices that create disparities. So for example, this is a bit of an ironic example, men more often negotiate their salaries than women. And I'm going to apologize for using cisgender vocabulary. This actually contributes to the gender wage gap. So ask as sort of a leader whether you should negotiate salary offers at all, if this is the case, right? That men are doing it more than women. I mean, it's a provocative question, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I love what you said uh, um, with allyship and, you know, we, training is good. We we should get on board with training, but I think the problem with training um, is that we, the organization feels like they've done their duty. Everyone's been trained. We've solved the problem, but absolutely not. Um, as you said, when we deal with humans, it's time intensive. It costs money. Yeah. We're humans. And that means being invested continually. It has to be in the DNA of the organization for change to happen and expected. And as you said, high performing cannot be the benchmark of staying at an organization and being promoted. It has to be also treating others with dignity and respect, right? Exactly. It's not and one or the other. It's not one or the others. And when I say costly, yes, it's costly in terms of money. It could also just be costly in terms of time and in terms of voting some members of the fraternity off the island, right? It could be costly in terms of relationships that you have might have to cut off because they are not contributing to the kind of organization that you want to have. That is a type of cost for an organization. In the end, though, and over time, dignity leaders are going to see uh, the following attributes increase. They're going to see dependability, loyalty, uh, employee engagement, productivity, retention, trust, and profits yeah. are going to increase. Absolutely. The return on investment, it turns out, from treating your people well is high. You have yeah. less turnover and all the costs associated with um, attracting and retaining and higher engagement, everything that you said. I absolutely, it seems to me, it really is business 101 to treat your people really well and invest in them because you're going to get better customer service, better ideas, better products. We don't know what we've lost by having toxic work environments. Uh, because you might say, oh, it you calculate the cost in a particular kind of way. But what about the lost, what happens when you have real inclusive inclusivity, where people really feel belonging and so they feel like they can actually bring their ideas to the table. They can actually speak up and we can benefit from the diversity that is present. Exactly. I, I don't know if you've heard about this uh, neuroscience research out of UCLA using fMRI. And I'm going to stop for a moment there and say how I know it's really popular to talk about neuroscience and I even talk about it in the book and I am not a neuroscientist and the media especially loves to drop in neuroscience and fMRI. Uh, so I'm just calling that out. I'm acknowledging it. Um, but there was a study out of UCLA where people were exposed to images of someone with a broken arm 
And the part of the brain that was illuminated was the ancient pain center that like deep in the limbic system, this is the amygdala. And there's a picture of this in my book because I talk about it in chapter 11 or 13 or something like that. And it's the place where all the strong emotions emanate from. The interesting thing is that when dignity was violated, it showed up in the brain in the same area as if the person was experiencing a physical injury. So the brain doesn't know the difference between wounded dignity and physical pain. The difference is that when you break your arm, you can go to the emergency room. But when your dignity is violated or you're treated in a, a derogatory way, there's no place to go like the ER to treat it. And I don't know if you've seen this statistic, Mary, but um, gosh, I saw it somewhere. Is something that 2,000 people interviewed, 80% of them felt that safety was the most violated element in the workplace, which wow. also relates to dignity. Yeah. Oh, no, I haven't seen that statistic. That's, And I think along with what you're saying, when our dignity is violated, when we're not being respected, right, the arm heals, but the, the fractures that we keep on having, like the pylon accumulative effect of being in an environment where we're not respected and then we don't feel safe. And you, you see it in workplaces, toxic workplaces. It's not one thing happens and then it's over. It's one thing and then another thing and another right. thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's all these things that add up. And, I, and I'm and i actually going to distinguish between dignity and respect. Yeah. The difference being that everyone is born with dignity. It's our baseline. We all deserve it. But respect must be earned. So when people in a conflict demand respect, what they probably mean is that they want to be treated with dignity. It's it's also different from self-esteem. Self-esteem can come and go, but dignity is constant because our inherent value and worth is always there. And that's where you can channel your inner, inner Bishop Desmond Tutu, who said, you are always worthy. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Our dignity is not based on what other people think, think of us, or even I think what we think of us. It's a part, we have infinite value and worth, I think, as human persons and therefore ought to treat ourselves and others with that in mind. Would you have any parting words for us today? Play nice. This is (laughs) the title of chapter two, and you need to read the book to find out what I really mean by that. Because I don't mean be nice. Of course, I think you should be nice as well (laughs) because you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. That's not what I mean by play nice. It is something splashy and sophisticated and really cool that you can be using in, in everyday life that is attendant to the superpower of everyday negotiation. Well, so that's wonderful. Find, find my book on Amazon. It's, it's, it's right there. It's available. I've told, I've been told it's unput downable. So, you know, <laughs> yes, I read it in a weekend. Uh, it was a great read and uh, we'll leave it right there. So you can check out and see what that means. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mary. It really, as Hemingway would say, it was a, it was a true moment in time, wasn't it? Absolutely. Thank you, Lucia, for sharing with us today. What a treat to have an author come and speak with us about her book. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conflict Managed. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps us 
get the word out. And if you can, please leave us a review. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services. You can find them online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. I'm your host, Mary Brown. If there's someone you would like to see us interview or a book reviewed, give us an email at 3pconflictrestoration at gmail.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.